With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to The Schmidt List, the podcast for people dedicated to managing successful projects, developing impactful products, and building engaged teams. And now, here's your host, Kurt Schmidt. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 2018 and episode 16 of The Schmidt List. First off, I have to apologize for my voice because I am just getting over a sickness. On today's show, I'm talking to David Hussman, founder of DevJam, speaker, author, and all-around brilliant individual. We discuss how software development has been under enormous transformation over the past two decades, and then where it's headed next. Talking with David was insightful, and I truly enjoyed it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with David Hussman. So tell me a little bit about your background and what DevJam is and how you got basically into software development and then starting a company around it. Yeah, you know, I actually have had a lot of time to reflect on that in the last few years, and I realized I've been a geek longer than I want to admit. Like when I was a little kid, I was writing Civil War games on the teletype with the computer at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> then I went off and did this rock and roll thing for a while, which was awesome. Yeah. And then sort of I came back and I was, you know, just like, oh, I got to get a job. You know, yeah. I think I'll do this computing thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my teachers always used to tease me. She said, yeah, you thought you'd get a job writing accounting software. I was pretty sure that wasn't going to happen. So I started out at this really neat place uh, with a, Kind of the mentor that everybody wants. Yeah. Brilliant person, completely optional, and it was three musicians writing digital audio software. And I had no idea how great my job was, right. you know, including going to conferences and um, standing there talking to people about our product. Yeah. And it turns out right. not everybody liked it. <laughs> that was the most sobering part. <laughs> but it was. Zoom forward, I ended up accidentally publishing a paper for like one of the early XP conferences, and I was pretty disillusioned with the whole technology world at that point. But mm. I met all these people that were seekers, you know, Ward Cunningham, Kent Beck. Um, sure. Everything was, everything was optional, and everything was on the table. And... Bang, Zoom, accidental coaching career. Right. <laughs> Not I'm, most of my career is a series of happy accidents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know how that goes. Uh, so do you feel that um, because you became that coach, it was because you had that great mentor? I find that a lot of people that I talk to that are in leadership positions are in leadership positions because they had great mentors and great leaders. But yeah, I had no idea. He was, first, he was the right combination, you know, really humble, really brilliant, mm -hmm. tons of geek chops. And almost too optional. I mean, the scary the joke was if you go over to his desk, be careful if you ask a question because you're going to get four solutions. And the hard part was figuring out which one you could grok and which one you might be able to code. Right. But certainly that. And then I think he was an entrepreneur and my father was an entrepreneur. So mm -hmm. starting DevJam and the company I started before that were just sort of an obvious thing. Let's just go do it. What could go wrong? Right. Oh, that's great. And so you, I've, I've listened to a lot of your YouTube videos. You do a lot of conference speaking. One of the things you talk about is the history of how we got to where we're at in terms of process and how to actually make software. I heard you say that in the 90s, it was very project focused, in the 2000s, very process focused, and now we're entering this product sort of age or we're, we're deep in it. But what I've found is that people are very, they were more apt to accept those earlier things, but product seems to be really halting people in some way. Why do you think that is? Why why are people having a hard time taking a product focus? Because I think people feel a comfort in saying this is done. Yeah. A project is done. Mm -hmm. We are doing Scrum. You know, all those kind of languages in the product space. If you really look at it seriously, you're not done. Any really great product person will say, you're not done until the product is dead. Right. It goes on and on. Even if you stop producing it, you're still sort of supporting it. And I think that ambiguity is scary for people. Sure. And so if you're coaching a development team to move from process to product, to get away from that done, to being like discover, constant discovery, 
what are some ways that you coach them around that? Is it just removing a lot of the process? Is it changing how they're incentivized? Like, how do you start to transform, which is the word of the yeah. last few years, <laughs> how do you start to transform that team into becoming more product focused? What are some of the ways that you could do that? Yeah, you have a cute little like first av thing that's in front of us right here. So <laughs> I sort of, I think for a lot of it, to me, we're in this space where, you know, a lot of things that used to be quandaries are certain of table stakes. So if you think sure. if you take all things agile and say, assume that's table stakes, okay. just like a musician, you got to show up, you got to be able to play your instrument, you got to be in tune. It's a good thing if you know the songs because the other musicians get kind of pissed if you don't really know how to play or make it through a song. But understanding key signatures and time signatures and tuning, those are like table stakes for being in a band. Right. Then if the band can make it through the song and rehearsal, you know, who, who really cares? You got to walk out on stage and do something that excites people. Yeah. I think that. You can, I think we need to go into these ecosystems and kind of stop talking about doing Scrum or Kanban. I think it's time for like the, the Scrum thing just needs to sort of die off, hopefully. Maybe not in a, in a horrible, tragic way, but sort of like objects. Objects are still a concept in programming. It's just people, and many people still don't know how to use them. But sure. it's not the focus. Yeah. You know, whether you're doing some encapsulation in JavaScript or Java, it sort of doesn't matter. You need to be able to wield those things. But that's just the beginning of being able to do interesting things for people. Sure. So I think if we, if you kind of to sum all that up, if all this agile stuff and all this like DevOps and you know twenty first century engineering becomes table stakes, mm -hmm. then I think we need to start challenging people to stop saying I'm a software engineer, start saying I'm a product developer, mm -hmm. just like you and I were talking about the Ramones. Yeah. So certainly. <laughs> uh, the guitar player is the guitar player, but he's the guitar player in the Ramones. Right. So, like, I think when we got to help people get bonded around the thing they're producing and the people they're impacting. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's going to be a, I think it's like, it's going to be a tougher change for people. Yeah. And so the bigger the company, I would guess the harder that is, right? And right. so I've seen a lot of places approach it differently where they do a mandate and it's very top down or they're like, no, we're going to create this innovation lab or this team and yeah. they're going to be the, they're going to be the the pace car, if you will, that, right. that everybody's going to learn from. Does it just depend on the company? Could you approach it either way, this this sort of way to become more agile? Yeah, the, there was a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, not The Innovator's Dilemma, Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. Oh, yeah. And later, Jeffrey Moore wrote a book called Escape Velocity. Yes, I love that book. So I think he was, he did a good job summing up the problem in big companies. Because like XP from what I know, started at like AT&T, Bell Labs. It was a small group of hackers that mm -hmm. just, like every company has it. So it's not so much big company. I think it's a group of people that are bonded around a thing. Mm -hmm. Where it starts to get clumsy is when you have more than six people. Suddenly when there's six, 60 people, the process doesn't grow by, you know, an order of magnitude. It grows exponentially or factorially. And people start worrying about everything except for the impact. And part of that has to do with the complexity of, piecing together all the parts that cross the teams and cross the user experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things we need to start visualizing that stuff more. Mm. Because when you can do that at a big company, then you can make a small product company inside a big company. Right. Now, the other part of your question that I'm sure you're aware of, too, is that there's so many of these IT shops. Yes. And it's just such a, it's a sad term. I looked it up at one point. Like, when did we start using the term IT? And it came about the same time we started you know, pre-pending everything with enterprise, you know? <laughs> but it was like a weird segmentation because in the 70s, there wasn't IT. Right. It was just geeks building things. Right. And then we, we lost sight of that and we started compartmentalizing. So it's really distinct to go into a product company that says we have products and customers. And you go into a big company that's an IT company and they have the IT and business. Yes. That's that we gotta burn that house down respectfully. Mm -hmm. I think if people are really true, what I find is that it, they have to really truly want change, not just want faster, cheaper, right? right? Yep. And so you know this whole idea that this phrase that was coined years ago, this digital transformation or IT transformation or whatever transformation you want to call it, I find to be fascinating because it's really just about becoming more customer focused in the end, right? It's it's about You've got a ton of data. Your customers want access to it. How are you going to get them access to that data? But in the past, I found talking with executives that they're scared of their customers. They don't want to talk to their customers. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm constantly yeah. fascinated by right. when 
either myself or I know somebody like you comes in, they hire you to coach them on how to become more lean, more agile, whatever the buzzword is. And then you approach them and you say, well, ultimately you're going to have to talk to your customer and or you're going to have to open up a bigger dialogue with them. And they're afraid to. How do you coach an executive around these types of transformations? Yeah. When I was talking to Jeff Godelf, he said, just hit them with data. Just hit, you know, hit them with data and say, this is what's happening. This is the real thing that's happening. Do you want to change this behavior or not? And the only way it's going to happen is if you are actually having those conversations. But how have you found success in talking with executives about this sort of idea? Yeah. And so, you know, even the whole agile space for years and years, people are saying, ask me, how do you get people to change? And I've sort of drawn the conclusion people don't change unless they want to. And right. you can tell them what to do and they'll do it until you leave the room and then they will revert to whatever dysfunctional behavior because it's comfortable. Yeah. You know, it's known. Yeah. Um, if we take the executive that is data driven, I think Jeff's got a good point. Mm. I think that to me, a burn down chart with Scrum is about as interesting as a speedometer. You know, it's like, or an odometer. It's like, okay, we're, we went somewhere at some rate. Was right. it a good a good idea or should we just pull over and hang out and have a picnic? Because <laughs> that would be a better choice. <laughs> so what I've been trying to do is like, if you think about what happened, we'll come back to the executives. Yeah. But like what happened with uh, continuous integration circa like 2001? People weren't doing it. And the integration was a nightmare and it was this costly thing and the people outside of the executive space knew it was a nightmare. They built up on the executives and it was like, what do you mean we have integration problems? So we started visualizing continuous integration and showing people here's the build issues and started broadcasting at one of the one of the gigs I did at Travelocity early on. They had a, a lava lamp that glowed. This exec came by and he's like, why do we have a lava lamp? And they said, oh, well, you know, when the build breaks, it turns red. But the lava lamp doesn't just turn red. It has to stay have to give it the signal for a while, oh, which I thought was really neat because it gives, <laughs> yeah. So he like said, that. he said, I want one. And the team was like, oh, we can't give him one. I was like, if you're scared to give that dude one, that's the problem. Like, <laughs> right. why are you scared? Because you get a little space to fix it. Mm. But that was about, you know, the build being broken, which usually meant test and run. So mm -hmm. that's now table state. Yeah. You know, that data is everywhere. The data I think we need to start looking at is the analytics. And you need to like, I've been thinking about this idea of like, instead of test driven, but sort of like impact driven, mm -hmm. where when we start working on a little chunk of work, story, feature, or whatever, first thing we do is park out the analytics. This is the impact mm -hmm. we think is going to be there. I think Jeff probably uses the term outcome. Mm -hmm. Here's the results we're looking for. And then that's what you start measuring, not how fast are we going? Hey, let's assume our car doesn't suck. You know, so, so we can actually move forward <laughs> right. at, a, in a, at a constant rate. You know, that's table stakes. Yeah. So I think some execs are going to get that more. Yeah. Because I think the ones that are thoughtful, um, well, the ones that I think are successful are looking for results. Yeah. Then there's those other people that I think you talked about that are scared of data. Mm -hmm. I mean, I brought those people data in the past and I hit them with data and they just executed me right. on the spot, you know. <laughs> so I think if. If you meet someone and you want to change their perspective, I think you have to first understand what their perspective is, no matter how dysfunctional it is, because you can't just present data to someone that doesn't understand statistics, if you will, because mm -hmm. they're just going to look at it as just a fancy graph. If I'm working to have my team being more autonomous and empowered and all these things, right? And is it that analytics that's going to help me understand when something's going to be done? As an executive, I have responsibilities. I have a budget. I have told the shareholders or other people that we're going to be at a certain spot and this thing you're working on is a big part of that. Well, how can I how can I balance control but also empowerment at the same time with a team like and to, to further use a car analogy, which I usually run away from. <laughs> but if you're driving with someone and you can't see the speedometer mm. and all you see is the sun going down, they're like, don't worry, we're going to get there. I'm sure we're going to get there. And you're like, well, I'm looking at my watch and the sun's going down. So, you right. know, can you give me some information? Hmm. Now that we have that data, we can better answer how far have we traveled. Mm -hmm. But we don't look at is the destination still the right destination or is the destination moved? That's what's wrong with a lot of roadmap metaphors is they, they kind of follow this you know, anonymously. The right path is the shortest distance between two lines, and that's not the right path. Right. But I think where where the Agile community is stuck or where this whole Agile stuff is mostly stuck is it people are talking about the definition of done, which is just a smaller version of project. Yeah. He's thinking, did we get it done? It's like, well, who cares if we get it done? Let's assume we're getting it done. Is it meaningful? Right. I think 
What was cool about test driven is not just writing a bunch of crappy tests, then writing a bunch of crappy code, mm-hmm. and just having more crappy code. <laughs> it was right. you and I sitting together, and you were challenging me to kind of say, "What well, can you express the specificity of that design in something that's absolute? That's a test." Now, what if we did the same thing with the work we're trying to get done? Instead of getting it done, what results do we want? Mm-hmm. I think we will stop doing certain things that we don't understand. Not that we don't necessarily, not that there's not going to be ambiguity, but if we, you and I can't even express to each other what results we're looking for, do we have any, should we just start it? Hopefully it's wildly, you know, experimental. Yeah. But if you're in that space where some executive has funded something, and let's just arbitrarily say it's $50 million, and the person's kind of on the line, like, I told people it would be done, and you can say to them, well, we spent a million dollars, and it looks like a terrible idea. Here's the data. That will at least drive the discussion from an investment back to an investment perspective. Instead Mm. of what can we get done, what's our next best investment? Sure. That that really challenges a lot of the traditionalist thinking. Yeah. Well, and again, it's, it's back to, I think, it comes back to culture in some way with some of the organizations and the the silos that are created and then people naturally at odds they're incentivized to be at odds against each other in an organization <laughs> i see that happen too often where the marketing team and the it definitely are incentivized in very different ways and i saw that in the early 2000s and then as people started to add these more digital components and somebody showed up and said we need an app who well, who owns that yeah you know, <laughs> yeah. who owns that? Is it IT? Because it's technology, right? but it's marketing our company. So is it marketing? Well, we'll create some weird middle group that will focus on it and then fight against everybody else, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, which is what I saw happen for years. Right. And then I think that's where a lot of people started reaching out to, like you said, they're working out to software development shops to say, come in and help us do this thing. But where I found the biggest issue was is not developing the application. It was aligning all these different groups internally around being what success is. What are some things that have been successful for you when you're that person tasked to come in and help solve that problem? So some of it's sort of this like, you know, there's like a Nietzschean model, you know, kind of someone says, no, 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 we just got to get it done. And you say, okay, well, give me some idea what the goals are. The goals are usually written down somewhere. They're in a PowerPoint. They're in Mm -hmm. some discussion. They're in a traditional project management charter they're yeah. there somewhere and you start kind of saying well how do we line these up if you're going to use sprints if you will mm-hmm. to across those sprints mm-hmm. and then start showing the person well this result you think gets not happening mm-hmm. you know so we can just keep investing in it. and if the person says yeah we just got to get it done maybe that's the best you and i could do but you you and i both know that like that just erodes the passion yeah. of the people around you and so Weirdly, you end up not getting as much done because people aren't very motivated. But if there's a way to do a little bit of rogue effort to say, you know, maybe we have to do it really formally. We want 10% of our bandwidth for the next two weeks Mm -hmm. to invest in something that seems emergent. Now, this is going back to Jeff's comment. The visualization of information, like it would be great if Edward Tufte were the speaker at every Agile conference, you know, so he got up there or or if all the Agile people just had all statisticians speaking at their conferences sure. for the next few years to kind of just kind of say, it's all about the data. And yeah. if you can't collect the data, what do you do in getting stuff done? Mm-hmm. If we started looking at more of that information, we might find that what we thought we were going to get done doesn't matter. But weirdly, there's this strange signal that's popping up over here on the side. And that kind of leads me to this thing that a friend of mine turned me on to a few years ago called design of experiment. So it's an industrial engineering concept okay. where if you're trying to say, I want these results, if you don't control the whole ecosystem, like if you have a digital population of 3 million, mm. you can't just sample six people. Yeah. You, know, you can sample a small subset of people and figure out whether the UI is right, but you're not going to be able to sample six people and figure out, is that the right result you want right so if you start getting more visualizations out there more analytics then you might find that what you thought was interesting is not but there's this weird signal over here now that's really going to ask some of those leaders to take a leap of faith yeah because they're going to be like and the ones that don't get the data we're going to have to do some education i think Mm -hmm. this is going to be significantly more difficult than the agile stuff was sure because it's more ambiguous there's more Mythical certainty of like, we got to just get it done. Right. Just think about how much that drives our whole ecosystem. In the back of everyone's mind, there's this weird pressure of like, well, people are billing. Right. You know, <laughs> that's not going to go away overnight. No, that's going to take a long time to change. Because again, 
back to how people are incentivized is a big part of it. I find that if you're if the dev- development team is incentivized on churning through points, then that's what you're going to get. Right. If, if they know that they get a good if they get good marks for because they were churning through they had this much velocity, right? Then that's the type of development team you're going to you're going to get. I invested a million dollars in this ERP system to track story points and things. So what do I Right. What do I do now? <laughs> Confirmation bias. Show me more story points. That must be good. Yeah. It must be good. And story points like inherently didn't start out wrong. Yeah. The idea of customer value was baked into the points. Mm-hmm. The whole points thing just, there was no way that was ever going to be successful because it got started by a small group of very thoughtful people who were highly collaborative, who often also happened to be pretty great engineers. Yeah. So they weren't worried about, hey, how do we get this to compile? That was a non. That was not an issue. <laughs> right. You know, it was like, how do we not write the wrong code when we start? Right. But it got lost because, like, I remember we used to do this thing called um, Infinity Map. Yeah. And that was such a cool way to have a conversation about a dimension of size was ambiguity, but that sort of got lost when the agile stuff just turned into how much can you grind out in two weeks? Again, I've seen people come in and they they hire like a consultant. And they try to get that started, or they go and hire Rally and come in with a sledgehammer, and um, <laughs> you know, and just hammer people into submission, right? Yeah. Well, the Rally software and, the, and their approach and stuff is, is great for a larger enterprise that needs a sledgehammer to come in and tear through the place. The bigger the place, the better. But that's when I look at it; it, it has to be a mandate coming from senior executives and people that that we need to make a change. Versus another approach like I've seen where you've got these small innovation teams that are going rogue, like you said, right. and doing this little rogue thing. And then people start taking notice and going, wait a second, how are, how are they working? Like how I would like to, I would like to work like that. I like how, yeah. I would yeah. like, I yeah. like, like they, they're getting a lot of praise from these groups and these other ones, right. you know, and I've seen that be successful. But you asked a question I didn't really answer it very well. The okay. other two things you just named, one of the things I think is really more powerful and a lot of people understand is. Telling stories of success, pointed success, and then reverse engineer how the success happened. That's what's really bugged me a lot about some of the, I don't know what to call them, scrum purists, scrum pundits. It's like they assume that because they did scrum, they were successful. That's just bad logic. You know, they're not looking at like root cause analysis. Yeah. I think the other thing too is to, we've been doing a lot of work where we go in and kind of, the first thing we do is instead of forming scrum team, we kind of try and name for this group of people working on this thing, what is the thing? Who is the thing going to impact? And what's the mapping between the parts of the thing and the teams that are going to produce it? Mm. So if it's one product and one team, then that's like Jeff when Jeff talks a lot. That's what I hear him talk about. But I don't hear Jeff really talk about the fact that when there's 60 people and they're segmented across multiple teams and there's an SAP team and a Java middle tier yeah. team. Somebody's in India front, and yeah. somebody's in Mexico. How do you, we're not doing a good job aligning teams around things so that we can measure customer impact. And that mapping doesn't solve the problem, but it show, sure shows a lot of the weird, arbitrary, accidental map mm-hmm. up front. And you can't scrum your way out of that. You can't have small, discrete teams that are all bonded around their part if the customers don't really care about it, if you got to put together all three things. Yeah. If I'm coaching, and I know you've coached a lot of developers in your time, what if I'm on one of those projects and I'm being moved to this team that's going to be more agile and all these different things, but I just don't like the work that I'm working on. Like, how are you, Yeah. like, how do you coach somebody who is already a bit despondent and you're trying to create, and I've heard you talk about this before, that great teams are because of the individuals and how they're working together, not mm-hmm. necessarily because they've got a great framework, right? Right. But how, how are some ways that you've coached, maybe disengaged people within those teams before, got them more excited about what's coming? Yes, I was just at this really cool conference in Australia called Yao, and I made a bunch of funny one-off T-shirts. One of the T-shirts I made without thinking I was going to Australia was called Death to Scrum? I chose not to wear it. So First of all, it's probably not a good idea to wear death to anything in the airport. Yeah, there's that, yeah. But I thought, it's time, right? It's time to stop talking about Scrum teams. Mm-hmm. So I'm one of those developers, and I'm identified as being on a Scrum team. It's It's like saying... Right. Mick Jagger is in a rock and roll band. It's mm-hmm. just so dumb. And if you think about like a music metaphor from the Twin Cities, without being insulting, I don't think anyone in Solosheim was ever a very good musician, sure. but they were a good band. Right. And they weren't a good band. When they started, they were called Loud Fast Rules. 
and they were like a bad version of the Ramones, but they stuck together. Mm -hmm. I think we need to help that developer, whether you and I can change it or not. Start having conversations about concepts that aren't new, like customer empathy, like Mm -hmm. product-centered learning, like Mm -hmm. human-centered design, and try and say, if you're really confident in your geek chops, then maybe the next best investment for you is to stop talking about JavaScript and the new JavaScript framework. And maybe the next thing, next thing, the next best investment for you and your team would be you not write any code for a week, yeah, and go talk to people. Yeah, that's gonna upset some of the Uber geeks as much as it's gonna upset the executive. Mm-hmm. And we're, I think, we're gonna have sort of a watershed where there's gonna be people that say, "I'm a product developer, maybe a web developer, but I'm not a Java geek." Yeah, I think that that sort of needs to go away. And JavaScript, the mess that it is is sort of doing a good job chipping away at that because it's so ubiquitous. Yeah. Anyone can sort of sit down and do it. That If you have a good idea, you might produce some ugly, messy code that's not very testable. But, you know, isn't that part of every great product you and I have ever been right. involved in? Yep. There's some part of the code that's ugly, and then we inter- we introduce the engineering side into that, just like a producer walks into the studio and says, hey, that's a great song. Let's just tune your guitar. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll cut to tracks. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said about getting that developer away from the computer and in front of those customers, getting making them a part of that experience, not just leaving it up to the user experience team right. or the, the project team or the product owner, whoever. Get them get their butts out of the seats. Have them sit in a an interview session where you're talking with customers. Have them be at the meeting where you're reviewing the survey data. Right. And encourage them to be a part of that discussion. I think that right there, like what you're saying, is is one of the most impactful things. But it is a hard thing because we need code. Right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. we need them to deliver the code. I'm right. I'm in this dangerous space where I'm <laughs> I'm not sure I should talk about some of the things I'm thinking. I, I sort of feel like while XP got some things wrong, what was really cool is the people that were the makers were there. And the makers were trying to kind of use new metaphors like, stories and customers and at that time we still had a pretty ugly segmentation between i'm design and you're developing Mm -hmm. and so as we move into this product space one of the things that's bugging me a little bit is i'm starting to hear people say well i'm on the discovery team and you're on the delivery team Uh, whoa whoa, that's not a that's not a small company of 12 that's not valve right Mm -hmm. that's like let's make this cool game let's make this part of the game really cool now if you're a drummer and I'm a guitar player, I'm probably not going to say, well, move, let me just play your part because it's rude. But we both are bonded sort of around musicality. And so I think we need, again, more of these engineers to be able to do some of that, some of those things. Now, that doesn't mean we just slam the door on the UX side. But I'm sort of becoming dubious of the user experience team. Mm-hmm. That feels like a segmentation sort of like the architecture team used to be those other people. And, and if we don't start chipping away at that, if we don't have the people that have really strong user experience skills, mm-hmm. start teaching other people. How do you know why that? Why does your intuition tell you that's wrong? Well, I've written my 10,000 hours of code and a lot of it was crappy. The UX people that are really good have done the same thing. They've done these designs where it's like, well, that's not how people typically think about things. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to start making user experience skills more ubiquitous the same way we started making architectural skills more ubiquitous in the beginning of the 2000s by like some of the XP ideas like collective code ownership. Yeah. Where it's not, you remember there was this tool called Envy. It was an IBM source control tool. The irony is it was written in objects, but it was the ultimate unobject concept. So I could own a method and you couldn't touch the method unless I let you touch the method. That mm. sounds so bizarre today. <laughs> right. But you do have like Linux you know, where someone is kind of saying, no, 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 we're not putting, I don't care how how passionate you are. There's that product ownership. With those different teams, you've got what I think is probably the death of a lot of good software, which is handoffs. Handoffs are just the, I mean, they, they, there was such early processes. I remember building software in the late nineties, early two thousand, handoffs were just part of the thing. And there was processes right. around handoffs. Yeah. There was big meetings. You'd sign have off. like sign off. Yeah. You'd have all these different things. It is not my problem anymore. Yeah. It is now your problem. And these days I don't see these great products being built with handoffs. I, I honestly, and I I think I've heard you talk about 
Apple's um, process before. They don't necessarily follow an agile or whatever, but I guarantee you there's no handoffs mm -hmm. at Apple where they're like, okay, hardware, it's your problem now. Right, and well, you know, Steve Jobs stories can be amazingly boring, but <laughs> make the world a better place. Yeah. Not get the project done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's true. And I've heard you talk before about test-driven meetings. And yeah. you, you, speaking of Steve Jobs, you told the story about Steve Jobs coming in and asking people why they were in the meeting. Yeah. I love that story. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about how, because meetings are are an essential part of what we do, but they're the worst part about what we do, but we, we have to do them. Yeah. How have you found making meetings more successful, like this test-driven idea that you, that you uh, shared? So test-driven meeting was just a joke. Actually, Brian Merrick, one of the guys who signed yeah. the Agile Manifesto, called me out. He was like, give me an example, because that's his whole thing. He's got this website called exampler.com. So I started giving Brian like concrete examples, like you show up for a meeting. This is what that book is called, Insanely Simple, and Jobs would show up and say, why are we here? And then he would ask each person why they're there, and he would politely disinvite people. That's like a test-driven. You're just figuring out how you produce the most value with the least amount of code. So <laughs> it's something you can, you can imagine sort of. This is almost like Dale Carnegie. We're reinventing an old concept. Hey, yeah. show up to a meeting with an agenda. Yeah. But an agenda <laughs> tends to be like more of like a recipe that if you follow it, you'll be successful. Yeah. And I think if you show up and you say, this is, I call this like the, the future backward. It's 60 minutes from now. What does success look like? Mm -hmm. Sort of asking people to say, what is it that we want to accomplish? Because I just sat in so many big, I see, I didn't know what a big meeting was because I worked at this little company with <laughs> 13 people mm -hmm. for seven years. Right. And I went into these big companies and there was oh yeah, it's all great. this noise. And I was like, oh my God, we're not getting anything done. No, there's done. like 30 people on right. the call. Right, yeah. <laughs> I did that for a bank one time and the person I was sitting next to was <laughs> texting, typing, listening to one phone call in her ear and monitoring another one on the phone. And I was like, this <laughs> yeah. just dysfunctional doesn't do justice to what's going on here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, but it becomes part of the norm. It becomes embedded in the culture because like when you've got these so-called cross-functional teams, the FOMO becomes huge with especially within these these leadership brackets within these different departments. It's like oh, uh, they had a meeting about this decision on this thing and I wasn't a part of it. You know, I, I why wasn't I invited to that? I need to be invited to those things and then you show up and you didn't need to be there in the first. So here's some <laughs> outrageous examples in my little dev jam universe. I outlawed the word yeah. No, no one can use that. We're going to call them jams. Yeah. Because you show up for a jam session, and if it's crappy, you stop playing, right? right. You got to figure out what's going <laughs> right. on. I was like, but we should have more meetings where we're walking around. So I started riffing on, like, what does it mean to, like, walk and jam? And I was like, well, who does that really well? And I thought, oh, well, the, the best people that do that are those sloppy jazz bands in New Orleans. Mm. So in South Minneapolis, we used to call it a Mardi Gras. Yes. And so we would have some of our best discussions walking around. Yeah. It's also kind of good for you. <laughs> good for you. One of the acquisitions I worked at in San Diego for a large company, after they came out of meetings, someone would publish the cost of the meeting. So I, and, and a lot of people were really freaked out by yeah. that. But it would be like, you know, if you for 40 people are on the phone call, that meeting gets really expensive yep. really fast. And if you're trying to, like, lean it down, well, that's pretty parochial. Yeah. That's a way to sort of get people to say, what's the value of what? I look at, and I've had this conversation with the executives before where they've called them million-dollar meetings, right? It's like, yeah. why are we having this million-dollar meeting? And I usually I turn around and I say, yes, why are we? Because you are driving a lot of these decisions. <laughs> you know, I know you don't like this. Yeah. I know you've said, well, I've hired you people to figure this thing out. We're still incentivized by the things that you put in front of us to say, this is what a good job looks like. Mm -hmm. So I I ask executives all the time to hold up the mirror first before they go in and start judging their teams and say, what incentives are you providing right. or you're, you're mandating with these folks that is driving this behavior, not just uh, they don't know what they're doing. These are very talented individuals, right. you know, but the way that they're being used and the way that they're being incentivized will sometimes turn people com into complete animals. Right. You know, and think of that like, you know, so that we don't get too far into executive bashing. One of the things, <laughs> one of the things I struggle with is teams, these agile teams. Mm -hmm. Like, well, we don't have the people here. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get the people. If I get the people in this room, you got to remember that these people have a lot of stuff going on. So an hour is a big deal. So mm -hmm. when they show up, bring the money. Yeah. Just don't kind of stumble around. Really get, in fact, 
publish the questions that you want to talk about before they get here because a lot of them are going to look at it on the way. They walk in the door and boom, you can sort of start because a lot of the people that are high value in meetings are being torn, the product space. Yeah. What I saw with like most of the product people, whether it was XP or Scrum or whatever, is a lot of them would say, I, I can't go sit with the team. I have a real job to do. And I would say, okay. And I would try to understand that and not just kind of run them over. And sure. I realized a lot of them had to be out talking to the market. They were doing all the stuff you and I are talking about. So they couldn't be highly available to the team. And this idea of the product owner was busted from the jump. Mm. Because if you get any kind of what's going on, you can't have one person and the team. Yeah. And that's why I think Scrum was sort of naive about this idea. The product owner will show up these ideas. The team will take the ideas and work on them in a Scrum. So that in a sprint, it's great that the team has ownership. But if the team doesn't have concept, it doesn't matter how passionate they are. Right. You know, they could just be wandering around in the woods, right. finding yeah. the most interesting <laughs> sticks. <laughs> right, exactly. Hey, I got one. No, that's not the one I want. Yeah, we used to say this where people would be like, go get me a rock. You know, no, not that rock. These developers are making decisions in the micro, you know, as they're going right. through and making those code. If they don't have that context, right. they're going to make bad decisions right. every time. If they don't understand what the ultimate, and I hate to use the word, but holistic goal that they're trying to achieve, they're going to make bad decisions in those micro moments when they're commenting this one line of code yep. that later could create X amount of tech debt and all these different things, right? Right. And there's so many great parts of that. How can we ask people to make interesting, discrete decisions when they don't have, and here's the metaphor they usually use, the big picture. Yeah. Sure. A frustrated, passionate technology person will say, I don't see the big picture. And when someone says that, man, you need to kind of respond. Yeah. Even if it's, whether it's perception or fact, if that person doesn't have context, no way are they going to make interesting decisions and no way are they going to be able to innovate and kind of say, hey, have you thought about this? Yeah. Because they can't really see. Now, I think. Well, you're setting them up to fail. Yeah. And, and where that, where, where that really came in harshly in the agile space is we had people designing for the future. And when the future changed, they got the solution that no one needed. <laughs> But that doesn't mean you kind of say, hey, don't worry about where we're going. Just look 100 feet down the road and be happy in the car. We're going to get there on time and you're going to love it when we get there. Like, well, first of all, I got to pee at some point, you know, and I might want to eat. So I don't, I'm not going to hold you to lunch at 12 to 16, but could you kind of give me some idea where we're going? Right. Yeah. So if, you, if you've got multiple teams and you, and you touched on this earlier where you maybe have these different teams, where have you found good success in promoting <laughs> yeah. learning across teams. I've drawn these crazy whiteboard pictures for a while that I should have published somewhere <laughs> because I don't think anyone's really talking about the more complex problems that I see and the more, especially complex, but complicated as well, hmm. exist across teams, across time. And when there's multiple teams working in three sets of technology, there's only one product backlog. Those other things are just parts, whatever yeah. component teams, whatever you want to call them. And arbitrarily assigning people and saying, you're the product owner on Team X. It's just, it's arbitrary. A product company would go, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. Now you could say that search is a product, but that's like a full stack thing that you and I can own. We can improve the search that has direct impact on customers. Mm -hmm. If I'm on the SAP team and you're on the mobile team and so sitting between us is some geeks on the Java team, the customer doesn't give a crap about any of that stuff right. and they got to cut all the way through it and we need to give those groups, a subset of people from those teams, context at some frequency that is allows them to be able to make interesting decisions. Mm. And so one of the models I've looked at quite a bit in the last few years is the military mm -hmm. because they figured out this agile stuff a long time ago. <laughs> they sure did. In fact, it's super funny. <laughs> I might have said this before you saw is that the Romans said the right size team for Right size team was eight. Scrum came along 2,000 years later and said seven plus or minus two, which is hysterical, right? <laughs> but that doesn't mean you just have 100 groups of eight because that doesn't scale when you're trying to solve complex dynamic problems, which is, I think, that back to our first discussion, that's the, that's the scary part in the product space is yeah. it's dynamic mm -hmm. and it's uncertain. And those are things that most people don't, especially right. people that are investing. Yeah. The <laughs> irony, though, of the people in the financial sector that aren't looking at the uncertainty about their investments when they invest in software projects. Mm. It just that's, it, it doesn't get more ironic. That's mm. awesome. Right. So I think that showing people that there's a frequency and a cadence of a subset of people, some of which are on teams and some of which are across teams, that's usually what I try and do is set up that cadence. And the more informal I can do it, the better. Now, yeah. oh, Thomson Reuters, 
when they rebuilt Westlaw, they built this thing called Westlaw Next. We did that pretty formal. We, we had like, at first we had like 60 people mm-hmm. and we had a subset of people that would meet and there was people that were thinking about cross-cutting concerns, security, concurrency, architecture, user experience. And they would sit with the people that were the leaders on the teams so that those people could get that context and then bring it back to their team. Mm-hmm. And then we set up sort of a frequency for them to connect across those teams, but not to do status reports. Here's what I did yesterday. Here's what I'm doing today to really talk about, hey, you know, when we planned this, we thought that I was going to consume this from you and we were going to have this API between the two of us, but it's not working out. The frequency is wrong. The granularity, the signature is wrong. Mm. So now you have like sort of product driven architecture. That I think is a cool concept. Mm-hmm. So I, that was a long answer. No, it's That's great. Actually, the stuff that I'm started trying to write about right now and I, I had a, I was pretty far down a path writing this thing for O'Reilly. And I thought it was going to be called, I thought it was going to be about product discovery and product delivery. But the more I wrote about it, I kept kind of segmenting, saying, well, if you have one team and one product, blah, blah, blah. But if you have many teams and one product. And so I reorganized the information to say, if you have this little ideal state of one team and one product, then you can sort of slam discovery and delivery almost on top of each other. But when you have segmentation that cuts across technical boundaries. And I keep using this SAP Java mobile one because I see it in all these big yeah, companies. a lot. You can't just, you just can't dynamically just shove those over the top of each other because the JavaScript wonks are going to go a lot faster than the SAP people. Yeah. So you have to sort of figure out what's your slowest moving thing and set up a, a feedback loop around that. If you're waiting for those teams to just figure that out on their own, that's a problem. And that's why, that's why I keep going back to the executives and what what they need to do to be able to empower those teams right. to start really talking to it, incentivize them to be talking with each other. Do you hear about this book, Turn the Ship Around? Uh, no. But it's probably worth like just kind of listeners thinking about it's okay. by a commander of a ship that was kind of saying, when the ship is running well, especially when a ship is docking, lots of people are involved, but if it goes well, the commander does nothing. Yeah. In the military, the Marines reorganized themselves maybe 15, 20 years ago, maybe less. To introduce this concept called commander's intent. Now, that might be something we could try to get some executives mm. to latch onto. Your job is to not tell people how to do it. Your job is to tell them what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And well, this, that book, I think, is, I think that guy's probably just making a gajillion dollars talking to leaders right now. He's really inspiring. Right. Well, and that's where I find ultimately, and I could go on for days about this, the problem with people thinking a list of features is a vision, right. Um, right. And which I run into over and over again. I mean, I remember walking into a very large organization and they said, well, you know, we're good. We, we already have our roadmap. And I right. said, this isn't a roadmap. This is a list of features over right. time. And they were like, what's the difference? And I was like, well, you, yeah, I'm not seeing what the impact is. <laughs> right, right. Like how, you know, how, how much, what percentage is your business going to X amount or whatever? Like right. what's the business impact according to each of these features that you called them. And they were shocked. They were like, but I'm, I was speaking your language. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I appreciate that, but that's probably, not. And probably that's probably the answer to one of your questions is you mm-hmm. and I need to go in and what seems obvious to us is not obvious. Just no. like continuous integration wasn't obvious. I was talking to an exec at a local company here in 2002 about XP Blah, blah, blah. I'm just ranting on and on about it. after about five minutes. He says, wasn't that have to do with an operating system? And I was like, that's not dude's fault. That's my fault. <laughs> right, so we right. need to figure out a way to keep introducing language to those people. Mm-hmm. I wrote this blog once called When Will It Be Done? Mm-hmm. Because I think that's what we've given a lot of leadership is yeah. tell me when it will be done. Well, that's not necessarily their fault. It's one big lump investment. They don't get that we can do incremental investment and invalidate things and spend money in a more interesting way. And we can't talk to them about Points and scrum and sprint. No. It's a, that, it's a, that, that ship has sailed, I think. I talked to like a good mid-sized startup not too long ago, and they don't even have something like Mixpanel or something right, right. in their system yeah. because they've just been so heads down getting stuff out. And and don't get me wrong, they're talking to the customer, they're iterating, they're right. doing all these things, but they're not gathering as much data as they could be. So going back to what you were saying about the customer journey, I wanted to ask, Let's unpack that just a little bit because I want to understand what your idea is. Is it that I'm marking a point in the future of this new customer behavior and then backtracking it? Um, obviously, with like dot, dot, dot after it, like this will continue. This isn't the end state. But is that kind of what you're talking about when you're talking about the, how I'm going to present that to my development team? Yeah. I want to say one thing. Think about what you just said is so brilliant. Like 
What happens when analytics become first-class citizens like automated tests? That's the next step. Then yeah. we'll start practicing impact-driven development. Mm. So, um, Makes sense. I want to build something. I think I know something about you. I'm pretty sure you want to do it. There's all sorts of things you could do in this thing I'm building. So I pick, I make some guess, some choice. I don't think everything's a guess. I'm a little bit down on sort of that language because I think it dumbs things down a little bit. But I make some choice. How quickly can I figure out if that's where you want to go? And I think the journey metaphor, I, I mean, I don't, I didn't create it. I just lifted it like most of the things I've done. You know, <laughs> hopefully not wrecked them too much. But I think it should connotate that it's important to take someone somewhere. It's not always about conversions. It's not always about subscriptions. If it's a pacemaker, you know, you're not really taking the patient anywhere other than hopefully not killing them. Right but you're taking the patient somewhere with the data you're gathering for the physician, then the physician typically doesn't know how to talk to you about all the uh, tacit knowledge that they have when mm -hmm. they make decisions. Right. And so they don't really even know to say, this data and this frequency in this way. You know, they know it when they sort of see it. And so if you say, this device inside this person, I want to gather this information, you don't have to put the device inside the person. You can have a fake patient. You can show it to a physician. But the physician doesn't want to just say, hey, show me random data. They want to say, this patient with this abnormality in their heartbeat, I need to look at this information. If I looked at that information, then I could go back and make a better decision for the patient. Mm -hmm. And so that little, that single thing that person's trying to do, that's what I'm thinking of as customer journey. Now, I've done some more traditional customer journeys for, um, I worked at a place that was a really successful retail company. Mm -hmm. They wanted to rush out and buy this thing so they could sell their stuff online. And I was like, you know, other people can sell your stuff better than you. Yeah. Do you really want to do that? Yeah. And I said, well, let's just look at like, how does someone discover you and how do they end up with your product at home? So we did a journey that was just not just digitally focused. And we found out that one of the reasons people bought stuff is because their friends told them a really cool story. So it allowed them to publish something that was just stories about their products and then still hand off the the pos the sale to another group so yeah. they didn't have to own that because they didn't have a big it show mm -hmm. and we said okay let's publish a few of these around a subset of products and see first of all who's reading how long are they reading how often are they sharing them because if our guess is that storytelling drives sales we could measure sales let's measure this stuff upstream and that cost us almost nothing yeah because publishing those pages was the biggest effort was actually getting the narrative. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Super cheap. Like, I don't know, orders of magnitude cheaper. These people coming out with their MBAs need to have a better understanding of the software development process because they're going to hit it at some point. Yes. Yeah, they can make a choice of say, how can I use that to my advantage? Right. You know, actually, I've been. So back to your question, how do I help groups? So let's, let's say I walk into an ecosystem where it's one product, one team. It's mm -hmm. isolated just to make it a simple example. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to get groups to kind of think of like one team, two cadences instead mm -hmm. of just having a sprint cadence, which is usually focused around learning by shipping mm -hmm. or learning by building. Let's take your backlog, if you will, and we'll split it into things we want to do discovery work on, things we want to do delivery work on. Because the discovery work I've been kind of saying to people is outside of production or in simple language outside of the code. Like, how can we learn? Now, you used a word that for me in the 90s was just poison, prototype. Because it usually meant crappy stuff that we ship and then yeah. we paid for. Well, what I found is that nobody could agree on what that meant. Yeah, right. <laughs> but in today's world, we can proto. That's what that's what may be good about the JavaScript spaces. You mm -hmm. can prototype stuff really fast, and then you're not going to take it away and giving them something else. You can right. actually build that pretty quick. So, what if we took some of these unicorns who are sort of like closet designers with pretty go faster JavaScript skills, and we said, this two weeks, you use Scrum language, this sprint. You're going to do mostly discovery work. We're going to produce some stuff, and we're going to put it in front of people. We're either going to put it in front of people and watch them directly, or we're going to send it out to a subset of people and we're going to watch it analytically. Yeah. But we're not going to produce anything that we're going to put into production. Sure. Because that's not cheap. That That's that's the space where I think that's like an evolution of all things sort of agile. But you have so many people, and for better or for worse, I think, the DevOps space has got people even more amped up on shipping. Mm -hmm. And I'm all about shipping, right? Because yeah. that's if you have to learn in production, you have to learn in production. But if you can learn 
outside of production. And that's why I think this idea of design of experiment is sort of interesting because mm. in production, you don't control everything. And that's, this is just a segue. This is probably why I'm so enamored by what's going on at Netflix because mm. Netflix and Facebook now have scale that no one else has. So you can't emulate that like Google can because Netflix's problem are scale, their dynamic traffic, and you can't just emulate that randomly. Right. The best way to learn is sort of in production. But most of the banks I work at, they don't have that problem. Right. And they don't spend enough time showing things to bankers, mm -hmm. for instance, who are the primary interface to some a lot of their customers. You know, so if you have insurance companies are the same kind of thing, the healthcare companies are often the same kind of thing where it's not just the end customer. There's someone sort of in between, but it's a captive audience. So you could get a subset of those people, get them to opt in, build a little simple thing, have them take five minutes and click through it and gather all those analytics and kind of say, did anybody go where we wanted them to go on this customer journey? If not, look, we shouldn't get all wound up about building it in Sprint 6. Right. You know? But that's that turns out to be really difficult for people because I think people have been so crappy at shipping for so long. When yeah. they start shipping, it's like an addiction. Yeah. That, I think we sort of need to unwind a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. I see it where people are confident. They're willing to kind of say, oh, yeah, I think we can ship. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we can break things down. Microservices, blah, 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 DevOps, blah, blah, blah. Let's not ship. Let's learn outside of the code. Mm -hmm. So that's a good answer to your question. That's if great. people said in the Scrum space, if you're a traditionalist Scrum group, let's spit our backlog into discovery work and delivery work. That might be a simple, concrete starting place for people. What's been a book in the past, just past few years, the past year, past few years, that's really been impactful for you? So the, the Netflickers just published this like little, I don't even think it's 100 pages thing you can get for free on the O'Reilly site about chaos engineering. Ah. I think that's really neat for the geek side of the house because... They're just doing all sorts of really fascinating stuff of our own resiliency. And that's happening, you know, around it's there they don't own that, but it's a nice little book. Yeah. That would be sort of one. I'm um, one that I just reread that I could probably reread every five years and be humbled again. It's the design of everyday things. Mm -hmm. It's just such a good book and I'm bringing it up here because I think more people that call themselves engineers should read it. I love that book. It's so it's so nice. When I was in Iceland last time and there was the classic push pull door. Mm-hmm. And the door moved to both ways. But on the right-hand side, there was a picture of someone standing and pushing the door. Yeah. And on the other side, there was a <laughs> yeah. picture of someone pulling the door. So even though the door went both directions, <laughs> it was, it was just, yeah, it was just really clear. That's great. No, I was in Iceland like two years ago, and I remember I remember seeing that thing. Yeah, yeah. That's genius. Another thing I want to ask you, tools. People love to talk about tools and things like that. What, what are some tools that you found that are very helpful for you in getting the work done that you do, whether it be a notebook or something more digital, like what is something that you like using? I know you you talked about uh, DevJam built that cardboard, which was really yeah. a cool product. But are there any other tools that you would suggest to people? It, it, it never ceases to amaze me. When I'm in a room with a bunch of people, it's not a million dollar meeting, but it's not a 10 cent meeting. Yeah. And there's one whiteboard that's three by four <laughs> and we run out of space and then we stop talking. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, you know? So I've, nah, I don't know if I do this. In fact, I'm sure I don't do this well, but like, I don't get why companies aren't just painting walls with whiteboard paint mm. everywhere because more people drawing, you know, those pictures aren't really good. Jeff Patton says we take pictures of whiteboards not because they're great drawings, because they're like vacation photos. Uh -huh. yeah, and that's a really nice riff. It is good. That would be one. There's a weird 3M product called Post-its, mm -hmm. not the physical device. Put it on your phone. You can put a bunch of Post-its up on a wall, and it's I've been hacking with it for a few years now, and you you put the post-its up in sort of like an XY coordinate. It captures all of your post-its mm -hmm. for them and it puts you into a either a CSV file or oh. an Excel file. Very or cool. Yeah. And that works really nice because there's so much work that's done with post-its that dies. Yeah. That was one of the things I wanted to do with cardboard. I never got to it was be able to just take a picture with that, mm -hmm. serialize the CSV file into a set of cardboard and just have them sort of pop up. And it's really dumb. It just does edge recognition and then it just turns it into a photo. So sure. you can't, it doesn't really do in character recognition, but for a lot of what we do, that's yeah. fine. What's some of the best professional advice you've ever received? <laughs> so for, for sure, one of the people that has influenced me more than anyone, I think, in the last 20, 30 years is Ward Cunningham. And I was sitting with him in Portland once and I said, does it ever frustrate you that like the amazing stuff you did at Tektronix just became so dumbed down. And he looked at me. And so first of all, this is not advice, but when you're around him, he's a pretty humble, brilliant person. And he said, no, I just go to the balcony. And I was like, what do you mean? 
Well, I go to the balcony and I look down at myself and I say, would I appreciate my behavior? <laughs> and it's some concept he took from someone else. But I think that's that's probably some of the best advice I've got because you go back to the executive space and I sit in those meetings and I'm like, the data says no, right? Why do you keep saying yes? All the evidence says stop, no. Stop, and I think, stop. I don't want to just bludgeon this person with the data. I want to understand their perspective. And I think Ward, I guess, Jeff and I and Ward and Alan Cooper were talking about this discovery and delivery thing. Mm -hmm. And Ward said, well, should we start with the things that are similarities or differences? And he's got all these like nice little patterns he uses to like spark discussion. Oh. And I think humility and that reflective part is so much more important than how fast we can go with geekery, whether it's geekery or program. So the last question I always ask is, and to your point, I think that might be your answer, is 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 for a leader, and I don't mean necessarily an executive, a person who is a leader within the technology or design, what is, in your opinion, has been the, the most important characteristic that they need to have in order to be that successful leader? Yeah, I think they have to figure out how wrong they're ready to be. Uh, so, you know, I'll give you another word story. There used to be this thing called the Fit Lab, and there was all this automated functional testing, and there would be like uh, 15 computers. And Ward walks in one day, we're all in there geeking out, and you can just see people... Because it was a joke then. It was like Kevin Bacon, like, what's your ward number? <laughs> so he stands up and he's like, who wrote blah, 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 some piece of code. And this guy like sheepishly raises his hand and says, I just broke your code. We need to have a conference. And I thought, man, that's it, right? Yeah. He's so confident that he's thoughtful and intelligent and skilled that he's willing to kind of say, I made the mistake. Mm -hmm. I think that's more leaders need to pattern that it's not, it's not some hokey falling on the sword crack. Yeah, it's just kind of saying that that seems wrong dispassionately. Mm -hmm. uh, the my best story about that is working in the Netherlands, um, in the States. We often say, "Oh, I don't want to step on his toes." Toes. Yeah. The Dutch equivalent is, "Don't worry, I don't have big feet." <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> That's great. Because you know, but what what scares people about working in the Netherlands is if you do something and I pointed something you did, there's one degree of separation between you and me, and right. so it's like that doesn't work. <laughs> That doesn't mean you're dumb. Right. It means that doesn't work. And I think that made it easy for me to work there. Yeah, I know you do a lot of talks and you do a lot of, you're doing a lot of writing and things. If people wanted to find out more about what David's doing, or I, I would encourage people to go to YouTube and just search for David Hussman and watch all the YouTube videos because they're great. I love all your talks. But if people want to catch up with you and keep an eye on what you're doing, where should we go? So I'm actually working on davidhussman.com, which okay. I just was like, I don't know if I can take that seriously, but I asked a bunch of my friends and they're like, what do you want to create a new brand for? Sure. So what I've been doing is I put up things out there like ideas, experiences, presentations, and like videos. And I tried to gather a bunch of stuff. And this book I was talking about, talking about writing. Mm -hmm. I think I'm just going to publish it like a series of small essays. So there'll be some kind of an arc to it okay. where it starts out with that thing you were talking about framing project process and product because i think you're we're into it it's yeah. not about to happen yeah. we're into it and we're not doing well <laughs> we're trying <right? laughs> yeah. but then i want to kind of talk about like hey what if you're this small like nice little well-organized team you know one team one product you're really bonded everybody has a lot of passion how can we kind of take all things agile and design and just turn it up to 11 and then the next series of essays will probably come out as like well what if you're not that what if you're a large digital solution with multiple teams. And then the third one, this is where I've been doing a lot of interviews lately, is what happens when your company doesn't really have a strong sense of product? Hmm. Like what if there's a company here in Minneapolis and I was sitting with one of the leaders on the business side. She said, well, we don't really have a product. We solve business problems for people. Right. And so they customize what they produced for different companies. Sure. So it's not like here's a, here's a, here's a Cheerio. <laughs> That's not their MO. Right. And, that's the most complex space I've been in yeah. because it's not a lot of the traditionalist product stuff is too narrow. Mm -hmm. And the product people often say, well, you can't be like that. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. That's their business model. That's how they're successful. And right. It's the same kind of like custom core kind yeah. of discussion. Sure. And it cuts from the product right down into the code. I'd love, I'm going to publish some of these interviews so people can sort of hear what I'm hearing descriptively instead of prescript. I don't know, a couple of weeks, davidhusman.com. All right. I love it. Well, thanks again, David, for joining me. Mm -hmm. Fascinating conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time to come by. Thanks for having us. Yeah, that's been great. 
And that's my conversation with David Hussman. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm excited for 2018. There's a lot of really cool, amazing guests lined up already. So stick with us. And I'd love to hear any feedback that you guys have. Um, If you haven't, make sure you hit the subscribe button and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks. Have a fantastic week. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.